broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mike Drop Club. Hosted by Douglas Hammondiche. Message received. Message received. You do not need to know what you need. What you need. Just engage with the podcast feed. Just engage with the podcast feed. Providing weekly insights into cool stuff we've read, saw, did, or heard about what made us say, wow, eureka, damn, nothing is off limits. If it motivates and inspires you to reach your goals, then it shall be discussed. Featuring guest interviews from high performers and people of influence and weekly awards for the best mic drop moment. This podcast is guaranteed to leave you pumped up for the week ahead. Don't just live life. Make life boom. How you guys doing out there? It's Douglas Hammond DJ with another episode of the Mic Drop Club. Today, I am super pumped up. Today, I'm super excited because through chance and through the power of LinkedIn, connecting with people of similar minds, Similar goals, similar aspirations. I managed to connect with the one and only Richard Reed from Pinnacle Wellbeing. Okay, so I'm lucky enough to have him here um, to share with us his thoughts, his feelings, and his journey throughout um, how he got into um, providing well-being, coaching, um, consultancy, um, psychological um, therapies, and all of that kind of stuff. Yes, yeah, a lot to unpack. So Richard asked me before we started the show, like, where am I going to take him? So I told him I'm just to run free, you know, be like a, a free range chicken. Yeah. Just do anything you want because, you know, I'm in awe. Um, I'm a fan. And so no further ado, I'd like to welcome Richard Reed to the Mic Drop Club. Richard, how are you doing? Good to be here, Douglas. Thanks oh, for having me. Fantastic. I don't know, thank you for answering the call-in. If, if you could even call it a call-in. Oh, um, yeah, I'm super, super happy. So how have you been the last few days and you know, the last few weeks regarding, you know, that, that um, elephant in the room, which we cannot ignore, the coronavirus? How are things with you and family? So we're all good. We're all healthy. But I guess probably like a lot of people... Uh, our activities have been really restrained. We're confined to the house. We're laid out for about an hour a day. Um, and, th- and that takes its toll because I guess there's a lot of things that we use for support, all of us, um, that has been taken away. And often you don't real- realise the value of those things until they're no longer there. Yeah. And it puts a lot more pressure on families, even if you get on well. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. I, I find the stairs are an odd, an odd, an odd like, it's like the twilight zone, like, who backs down? <laughs> you know, you know. I, I like chivalry, so I'll say, you know, let the missus go up or whatever. But sometimes you're caught in like you're halfway and you're thinking about your calves. <laughs> you're thinking. <laughs> so, I can see you've got a lot of time in your hands. <laughs> yeah, it is, it's a difficult time, as you're right for said, in terms of um, the family and making those adjustments, you know, whilst trying to remain upbeat and positive, you know, um, the adjustments is what I really want to tap into at some point today. You know, how do people manage the, the change? Particularly whereby you don't know, you know why you're changing, but you don't know how long this change is going to be for, whether or not it's going to be permanent or not. Like, you know, like giving up smoking, you know, it's for your health and um, you give it up, you're going to be better off. But some of the changes we've been forced to make and some of the changes in terms of our work environment have been put upon us and we don't know if, if actually home-based working works for all of us, for example. 
Yeah, I think it's an interesting point you made there about we, we you know, there's the, the, the change element of it, but there's, as you said, quite rightly say, there's, there's, there's no obvious end in sight, is it? It could end next week, it could end in six months, it could end in a year. And as human beings, we don't deal well with uncertainty, we don't deal well with change. Some of us obviously deal with it better than others, but all of us, we're hardwired to not like change, to not like uncertainty, because it all goes back to the primitive part of the brain. Yeah. Um, and we tend to equate those things on some deeper level with threats or, or, or the risk of death. And it might sound like a silly thing to say, but actually that's what it boils down to. It's the reason why you and I are here today having this conversation is that our ancestors mm. had that, that trigger within them that reacted strongly to those, those kind of stimulus. Wow. Wow. And yeah, wow. And in terms of, so what does that look like then in terms of to the layman? You know, I understand a bit of it in terms of, you know, the, the flight or fright type scenario yeah. that comes in. Yeah. Um, so is that what we're talking about here, really? It is most extreme form would be fight or flight. And I guess what we've got here is most of us don't have the opportunity to, to, to fight or, or, or to run away from this situation. It is what it is. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're stuck in it. And, and so what tends to happen is we get a lot of the physiological responses that we get in those kind of situations. But more importantly we'll get the, the behavioural and the, and the cognitive, the thinking patterns that go along with that. And so the kind of things that people might notice is that they are looking at things in extreme ways. So if you've got um, threats around your health, threats around the economy, threats around uh, what this means for your relationships or your job, we tend to gravitate towards the most extreme version of, of what might happen. Yeah. yeah. And, and what's happening there is that the, the most primitive part of the brain, what we call the reptilian brain, is, is trying to protect us, is trying to get us to anticipate the worst case scenario mm. so we're more prepared for it. Um, and, and when we don't know exactly what's going to happen, it fills in the gaps with those most extreme ideas. Yeah. And, and sometimes those things will, will happen. But if you're anything like me, a lot of the time when you wake up in the middle of the night, worry about things, not only do you wake up the next day feeling really retired, but you think, what was all that about? Because a lot of the time, the things that you think are going to happen are not the things that actually happen. And so you're using lots of your internal resources inappropriately. Yeah. And I guess the big thing at the moment, the big thing anytime, but particularly at a time like this, is resilience. Yeah. You big have words. a finite big pool words. of resources. Yeah. And, and when that's not being recharged by lots of the everyday activities you'd ordinarily have, you need to take even more care of it. Yeah. So allow yourself to run away with these extreme thoughts, which is what a lot of people will do, understandably, is deplenishing your limited resources. Yeah, and then that's the thing about the um the the the, place, the the depletion of the resilience and and how you replenish that, you know, through habits that you normally would do, maybe eat a certain eat a certain diet, exercise, or whatever it is that you do to um give you sustenance in that in that domain. Um, but I guess when you have an environment such as the one that we have now, whereby the news, the media is constantly bombarding you. And I like to be positive and I tell, tell the kids, you know, before you go to bed, please don't watch the news or anything like that. But if that's the last thing that you have seen and it's literally repetitious, um, and this, they're not really adding anything new if you've been watching it throughout the day. No, I, I'm old enough and great enough to know. <laughs> uh, I grew up at a time whereby news was like four times a day. You know, the six o'clock news, maybe the 10 o'clock news or yeah. specific times you watch the news anyway. But now when it's through me, just 24 seven, it's not relenting. It's just constant, 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 constant. Yeah. Then you go to bed and you wake up and it's like, wow, 
you had the worst nightmare, you know, you're extra tired, irritable. These are things I'm I'm feeling, I'm reporting about myself and um, my family around me. I'm seeing, and I'm, I'm constantly trying to reassure, but it's very hard to to pitch it right, whereby as soon as you f- switch the channel on, someone is sitting there straight and giving you facts, you know, yeah. that are very bleak, let's be honest, you know? Yeah. It, it, I think it's, you know, as with a lot of things, it's, it's, it's finding that balance, isn't it? I think we need to be a, a, aware of what, what's going on. We need to be aware of, of the risks and the things that we need to do to protect ourselves. But we, we, we've also got to counterbalance that. You know, it's estimated that it takes three positive thoughts to counteract one negative thought. That's how hardwired we are as human beings. Three positive. So, so again, three positive thoughts to counteract to counteract one, one negative thought. Okay. Because we're okay. hardwired to think about the negative because it's about safety, mm. uh, survival over thri- over thriving. Wow, wow! And again, the work that you do in terms of the coaching people around it, because you can speak about it very eloquently, is the how then? Because some people might not know what a positive thought is. Or negative. Some people don't even know that they're ultra negative. They, they, yeah. they don't have that awareness themselves. So, this is it. What is a positive <laughs> thought? Is it? Oh God. Well, I guess it's it's not necessarily about um, you know we're not talking about the syrupy kind of positive thoughts. We're not about talking about saying everything's wonderful when it when it's not. What yeah. we're doing is it's it's about trying to grab onto the, the natural positive resources that make themselves available. So it might be sense of accomplishment about something. It okay. might be a, a positive comment from somebody. You know, you think about how most people um, mm-hmm. behave in everyday life. We, we very readily believe somebody when they give us a criticism, but we tend to be dismissive either outwardly or inwardly when we get a compliment. Oh, they're just being nice. Yeah. Or they wouldn't say that if they knew this. So true. So or true. this whole thing, this is no big deal. All these kind of things that we say to, to, to kind of dismiss the positives. And what we're doing mm-hmm. there is we're denying ourselves opportunities to, to grasp hold of positive things that are, that are going on around us. And even, you know, that, that I'm a big advocate of mindfulness. For anybody who doesn't know about mindfulness, it's really about focused attention. It's where you choose to put your attention. And most of us, through autopilot, we drift into automatically focusing on negatives. And actually, even if you're confined to your house or, or your garden, yeah. small things within nature, it might not be something you're thinking about in 20 years' time. Wow, wasn't that amazing, that butterfly I saw in the garden 20 years ago? Mm. But grasping onto those things, those small fragments of positivity, it's not creating things that aren't there. It's just noticing the things that are there starts to break up this all-encompassing all negativity. And the reptilian brain is all about that. It tends to see things in all or nothing terms. Everything's wonderful or everything's awful. Okay. And you imagine what that's like for a lot of people right now. There's a lot to hold on to if you want to focus on the negative. No, I, I, t- I totally agree. And we've gone through a lot as a nation, talking about being in the UK, a lot. Um, we've exiting out of the UK, out of the um, e, um, Europe. Yeah. And that yeah. in itself, um, we've had news, been bombarded by news for the last four yeah. years, constant, relentless Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. I think when we met, we were talking about Brexit and thinking, oh, when yeah. is this going to end? And then now we've got this, you know, another scenario whereby the future is uncertain. But I, I really like the whole concept of holding on to positive thoughts and that um, it ultimately has more of an impact on your well-being than a lot of people give that credit for. I hate 
I hate, and this is probably where I need some coaching. <laughs> I hate compliments. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I struggle. I've struggled all my life to deal with a compliment. I don't know what to do. I end up, someone says something either about what I'm wearing or anything I've done. I end up grabbing my eyes, go to my feet. I, I kick imaginary stones. Oh, I just, just, just dismiss it. <laughs> you know, and that's a really common thing. And I've tried to figure out, you know, I work with people from across the, across the world. And I've tried to figure out, is this, a, is this a British culture thing or is this something that people across the world yeah. have? I think to some degree, people all over the world have this. But there are certain cultures that, that don't traditionally have this. So I think, you know, if you look at people from the US or, 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 or Australia or South Africa, sweeping generalizations to some sure. extent, but that to, a, to a large degree, I would say that they are um, far more comfortable with embracing positivity and compliments than we are. And, and, and a lot of British people, for instance, will look at Americans as being arrogant when actually all they're doing is acknowledging yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. So, because like, we're so far down the other end of the scale to us, it will often seem like arrogance. And a lot of the time, when we deny compliments, it really is a form of protection. Okay. You know, you see in the in the British press don't that when somebody gets successful, they get get knocked down. And there's yeah. an element of that in society. Who are you to say that about yourself? Yeah. Don't get too big for your boots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we kind of we kind of deny it. Or we make jokes at our own expense. Because it means it takes the power out of other people's opportunities to do that to us. I think that's. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Because so all the time we're denying opportunities to acknowledge things that are good about us. Mm. To the extent where we even try to make like like for like comparisons, other people say, "Well, you know, they're better looking than me. They're richer than me." And 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 every time we do that, we're undermining ourselves and denying what's unique and special about us. Wow. You know, as, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm reflecting as well. And I think you're so right because you've, you have, I have this sense of you're saying a compliment today, but when is the bad news coming type thing? It's like, well, this is it. This, what's, what's the catch? Yeah. Yeah. What's the catch? You know, like you said, you said you like my, 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 my soup. Where's the catch? What do you want? <laughs> Yeah, where you want, or yeah. when's the joke coming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, just, I just can't let it go. And the thing is, it keeps playing and playing in, in my in my head. You know, then to the point, it's like it becomes uncomfortable for me. I, I don't yeah. mind giving out compliments. I give out compliments more than more than anything. I think I do quite often give out compliments. I, I like doing. I like the. I like giving the compliments. It's the, yeah. the reciprocation of the compliment that I've always struggled with. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bear that in mind and um. Think about techniques I can I can do to really embrace it. It's not arrogance, as you as you're saying. Um, if somebody acknowledges that you've taken extra effort to do something, you know, um, take it at face value. And, and you, you know, yeah. if that's something you don't do, mm. almost certainly you're going to feel physically uncomfortable. And you know, as you said, there'll be certain behaviours. You might look at your feet. You might look away. Yeah. And it's you know, a lot of this stuff when we're trying to address negative reactions and negative thoughts. It starts with self-awareness. You know, I can give you all the techniques in the world, but if you don't know you're doing it mm. in real time, it will only get you so far. So no, noticing those kind of behaviours and intentionally doing something else, you know, holding eye contact or noticing the discomfort but, but acknowledging the compliment anyway, the more you do that, you're basically re-educating your reptilian brain. You're teaching it that actually when I do this, and I've done this a number of times, nothing bad happens. And so it starts to get more comfortable with those kind of scenarios. It's training it to start to bridge that gap. Yeah. And then that gap needs this to... Is, this is massive. No, no it is massive. For everybody, not just now. Yeah. And I had a conversation with one of my colleagues the other day and um, 
So she was saying to me, why do you spend all your time reading personal development books and stuff like that? I said, what else is there to talk about or, or to read about? If you're not, I, I can't see anything outside of you developing yourself as an individual, as a person and yeah. having that self-awareness. So um, I, I, I totally get that and subscribe to it. You mentioned something there about um, eye contact. And from, from my experience when as, as a mental health nurse and I've had to give people coaching, um, some coaches I found, they don't maintain eye contact at all. And I certainly, the way I was raised, if I was to, to square um, look at my father in his eyes, it was a sign of threat. <laughs> well, this is it. You've got to, you know, there's, there's family cultures, you know, you've got, you've got world cultures. Yeah. Eye contact means different things to different people, but, but generally, you know, I did a lot of stuff around body language. Generally speaking, in, in, in Western yeah. culture, depends on the scenario, but generally speaking, uh, making eye contact with somebody about 80% of the time is, is quite healthy. Any more than that, and you might come across as a serial killer, but 80% of the time <laughs> That's it. He, he, he's okay. And particularly when you want somebody to see that you're genuine or when it is that you're trying to confront your own barriers, your own limitations. So if there are things where you know that you feel uncomfortable, deliberately holding eye contact for even a fraction longer than you normally would, it starts to re-educate your brain. Okay, so you hold think, it. You know, so you hold it. You're, you're, hold, you're holding it. You know, and a lot of the reason why people look away is because they're worried. Of, you know, they say that the eyes are the windows of the soul. People look away. Yeah. Because it's an instinctive response that says, "If you look at me, you'll see exactly what I'm feeling right now." Yeah. I, you know, and I see this in the therapy room. You know, quite often some of the best conversations I have with people is when they don't have to look at me directly because they open up more. You know, you think about car journeys, walking next to somebody in the park. Yeah. People say things they might not say. They're set directly opposite you when you are yeah. looking at them. Yeah, until you get to so, you that know, level. Eye of- contact can be a useful thing in terms of educating our own level of comfort. Yeah, but we've also got to be mindful that actually it might not always be what other people need. Sometimes they're more likely to disclose things that are important to yeah and to I, them. And I think give them that space exactly. And I think that that therein lies another truth. Or not another hidden layer there, whereby this hiding or veiling of the eye contact can be perceived um, that you to the to the observer that you're you're going to reveal something, and depending on your capability, you might not feel comfortable in what you perceive is going to be revealed. Yeah, following my drift because sometimes yeah. you have conversations yeah. that you can sense it's going to go somewhere that you're not prepared for. You don't want that conversation yeah. for whatever reason, so you mirror or whatever it is to reassure that person that, that looking away was okay, and then you dismiss it and you talk about something else completely. Well, you had a moment. Yeah. You're not to be aware, of not confronting the the elephant in the room, can't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a big believer of uh, confronting the elephant in the room, but it's taken me a long time to um to really grasp the whole concept of addressing that because it, it takes courage and I think so, you know this idea of self-awareness self-awareness is you know, it's an ongoing process you know I teach a lot of this stuff but mm. you know I wouldn't claim to be fully enlightened all the time we're developing sometimes we're slipping back into our behaviours but self-awareness gives you the power to make informed choices so it might be that you make a choice to hold eye contact a little bit longer or you know that it's making somebody else uncomfortable and you, and you give them that space by looking away yeah so it allows you to, to do things in real time rather than doing things by default. And we've all got defaults. And the more that we do things in autopilot, the more that we rely on the reptilian brain, 
the more that we're doing things without making an informed choice. Wow. And that's what really all this stuff is about. It's about giving you more control over the outcomes. And that that's key because in terms of control right now, when... There isn't any out there. There's no control. So what can you do to control your internal world? Yeah, yeah, that's what it distills down to. And outside of the coronavirus, Brexit and all of that, those things, control was was one of those things that you would attribute attribute more to people that have, say, OCD or behaviours that are over-controlling. Absolutely. And again, that's, you know, those outward behaviours are mm. about trying to con- control and appease what's going on internally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that- we've all got, you know, this is one of the things about the reptilian brand. So OCD mm. is an, extru- an extreme way of trying to control anxiety. We all are prone to elements of OCD when we get anxious, you know, Classic example, you, your key doesn't work in the door, so you keep trying the same thing over and over again. Yeah, yeah, I do. You, know, you get annoyed with somebody if you keep asking the same question over and over again. We had lots in this behavior, and there's lots of research to show that, that it has strong parallels with what we would regard as OCD. Yeah, and there, and no, our thoughts go out to anybody that has OCD, particularly during this time of crisis, because there's evidence out there to support the OCD. So it's very hard to to get somebody to rationalise or to to tell you can't really say it. Don't take it so seriously when the situation is serious. You have to exactly. So you, I think you, you know everybody needs to be aware to some extent of what's happening out there. But I think again, you know, making these deliberate choices about where you put your attention. If there's very little you can do out there, it's about fo- focusing most of your attention on the areas where you can make a difference. And and whatever is going on around you there are always practical things you can do to manage what's happening inside of you and nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really important. But the other thing I wanted to say about some positive thoughts is, Mm. you know, and it really ties in with what we've already said is that um, self-compassion plays a big part. Most of us are far more unkind to ourselves than we would ever dream of being to other people. We beat ourselves up when we make a mistake or a, a faux pas. You know, you shouldn't have done that. You're such an idiot. We, you know, we, 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 we go into our shell. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, think about, you know, you know, one way of thinking about this is imagine that there's a small child inside of yourself. Mm. You know, we may look older on the outside, but actually on some level we're a child on the inside. Yeah. And how we talk to ourselves is, for most of us with children, is not how we would dream of speaking to them. And when you're the kind of parent to yourself that wags a finger, you tend to limit that child's opportunities, it becomes more wary about making mistakes and trying new things. Whereas when you're the parent who puts the arm around the shoulder and doesn't sweep things under the carpet, but acknowledges the difficulties and effectively says, okay, what can we learn from this to make it better for next time? You're, you're helping that child to grow. You're helping its confidence. And so, that's exactly what we need to be doing with ourselves. So that's self-compassion. Absolutely. Self-compassion. And, and almost, almost to a person, mm-hmm. we fail at this. Yeah, and this, very, I don't know this is why, at all, we're very good at this. And this is why, Richard, um, I'm not too sure if you know the concept of the show, The Mic Drop. Yeah? The mic Tell drop, me a little more. Yeah, The Mic Drop is all about um, and now enabling a, a, an environment whereby we can be self-aware of when we have experienced things that made us say, wow, Eureka, had our, had our own mic drop moments. Throughout history or in the media, there's always people that say things and we say they, they've done a mic drop and it's them. But we yeah. also have the ability to 
bear witness to things and also do say things that are profound that change our outlook. So on the My Dot Show, um, we like to reward things that are expressions or revelations, whatever the case would be, that are that moment that, wow, I get it. That is something profound. So self-compassion, if you break it down one more time, Richard, and I'll give you what we call an atomic mic drop. Self-compassion. Go ahead. Okay, guys, everybody ready? Atomic mic drop. There you have it. (laughs) So self-compassion is about being kind to yourself. It's about accepting your own mistakes, and it's about effectively being a parent to yourself, being an encouraging parent rather than a nagging parent. Yeah. And because we all have that inside of us, ourselves often what it means is we're very wary about showing people the vulnerable parts of ourselves and so we have shame we only tend to show people the bits of ourselves we want them to see or if other bits come out it's generally when we're under pressure so times like now but actually if we're proactive about it if we tell people we're struggling with something or we talk about things that might be sometimes a little bit controversial about ourselves or a little bit unusual within reason most people will will acknowledge that and, and in some res- respects actually give it give it credibility. What that means is we start to diminish the parts of ourselves that are in the shadows. That's, that's very and that's massively important in terms of building confidence, self-esteem, self-compassion. Yeah, self-compassion. And um, I'm digressing, but I'm going to try and bring it home um, to, to the viewers and to the listeners as well in terms of, it's one of those things whereby... I wasn't told self-compassion. I beat myself up all the time. And I've been using this as a motivator all the time. I don't use like the way I don't like say, oh, you've gone through a lot, Douglas, in your life. And, you know, give yourself a break. Just you turning up, showing up for work. You should reward yourself. Blah, blah. I'm a, I am my worst critic. And the people who have been gravitating around me have also, also have the same kind of mindset that, you know, you are your own self-critic. So it's something that, I totally agree with you, 100%. We don't do it well. We don't give ourselves self-compassion enough, hug hug ourselves, hug hug our inner selves enough. And that can lead us into a very dark, dark place. Uh, Absolutely. Particularly when, you know, a lot of the time people think that it works for them. Not to a point it it, it may well do, but actually what it means is you you don't necessarily have the opportunity to enjoy your achievements. Mm and you only feel as good as the last thing that you did well. Yeah. But, it, but it also means that it, it, it stagnates us. We don't take as many risks. We don't grow into the person that we were necessarily meant to be. Yeah. And, and, and even if we're not articulating to other people, we will generally acknowledge and reward the things in other people that are about achievement. And even if we're not criticising them, the absence of, of, of praise mm. often informs what we know is good and what we know to be bad. And, and, and parents do. You know, parents, you know, who, who love their children very much, they may not shout at their children or criticise them when they do something wrong or make a mistake. But often the absence of praise reinforces this idea that that was different to the time before when they did something well. Mm. And, we, and we embed it. And those voices or that silence becomes our own voice to the point where we forget that we ever felt differently. Wow. So... The, the stuff that you're breaking down, what got you into um, 
wellness and the whole psychological therapies. Um, what was your journey? Because you speak with so much passion and authenticity. You've gone on a journey. What was the journey like? <laughs> it's a bit of a weird one. So I, um, I did a classics degree at university. So I did Latin and ancient Greek. Oh, wow. And, um, don't ask me why. <laughs> but, to the old. I was going to go in the army. <laughs> and, uh, the last minute I thought, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't want to get shot at. <laughs> so I didn't do that. And, um, there were a lot of IT jobs at the time when I was coming out of university. And I, I went into IT, I got into business consultancy and was doing pretty well. I was probably sort of ticking the box in, a lot, in terms of a lot of things that I thought I wanted from life. You know, uh, nice girlfriend, nice car, nice nice job, nice house. But very little of it actually meant anything to me. I thought, well, th- if this is it mm. and I'm in my 20s, where, you know, where, did, where does it all go? What's what's next? Yeah, yeah. And um, one day I came into work and I thought, I can't do this anymore. And I told my boss, I'm, I'm handing my notes in, I'm going. And a month later, I was in Kenya. Wow. And I spent uh, 12 months traveling through Africa, traveling through Asia, South America. Um, and towards the end of that trip, I was, uh, I was in Patagonia. <laughs> and I was sharing, I, I told you it was a weird story. I was in Patagonia with a, uh, sharing a tent with a psychiatrist from Wales. And he just split up with his wife. And I was sort of on this, this bit of a journey in more ways than one. Uh, one night we were chatting about why we were where we were and what we we're going to do next. And he said, have you ever thought about being a therapist? Uh, and I, I hadn't, but uh, he started to tell me a bit more about it. And when I got back to the UK, I did a bit of research, started doing a few weekend and evening courses. And it sort of snowballed from there, really. And uh, eventually I decided to take the plunge, yep. gave up my consultancy job that I was doing when I got back and went into private practice, uh, yep. working with trauma. So... Um, working with survivors of the 7-7 bombings, um, road traffic accidents, train drivers, police, things like that. And, and, and that really sort of got me into sort of the really meaty therapy work. And I guess if you can work with that, you can work with most things. Yes. And what I realized was a lot of those people weren't fulfilling their potential because they were being held back by their, their traumatic experiences. And, and so that really got me thinking about, on a broader scale, even people who haven't had a trauma what are the things that are stopping us from being everything that we were meant to be? And that's really the premise of everything I do. It's about trying to make therapy accessible for everybody and trying to help everybody and whatever that means to them to be the best version of themselves. Brilliant. We, we salute you for that. We most definitely salute you for that because a lot of people don't realise the value in therapy. They, they view it in the context that you must have lost your marbles or something else derogatory in yeah. terms. But therapy can help unleash that latent potential that you have because it allows you, as you're saying, talk about releasing your potential, um, take a look at your your belief systems, what you value, because sometimes we've never had the opportunity to really objectively look at those things. I'll give you an example just for, for the conversation. Um, sometimes we have, we have all our protective characteristics to some degree, right? And... And I was telling a, a patient at the time that you're, say you're black, you're, you're objectively black, fine. Um, that's a protected characteristic. You cannot do anything about your race. But even within that construct that you, that's protected, there's limitations in terms of your belief because they're, they're, they're perceptions in the way that you're supposed to behave and respond to certain situations. So what happens if you don't conform to these Stereotypes, you know, you got to be thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I done a lot of work with this young chap, and it was it was difficult for for him to grasp the fact that 
any belief system is, is has limitations to because you you have because the belief system has a remit that makes it a belief system. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Even um, perceived race and perceived genders they have a limits. Outside of that, you're not perceived anymore as being this. You're absolutely yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So I find it fascinating that um, we can have a conversation now coming from. Like I come from a very medicalized model, even though I don't embrace it, I, I, I fully embrace the recovery model, which means I engage a lot more with psychological therapies and all of that kind of kind of stuff over yeah. the medication. Cause I feel that it's to a greater degree, it is that inability to reconcile something inside that's bugging you individual and the work that you're doing you know, you've also reached out to people that are going through these traumas that have actually served for the country, you know, um, paramedics, all that kind of stuff who were on this first on the scene for seven, seven. So they've seen the worst of humanity as it were. But still within that, there's an inner voice, isn't there? There's something you're having to peel back the layers and I just fascinate. How, how, how would you do that? How do, what's, your, what's your approach to peeling back the layers and you know, when the trauma is so horrific, you know, yeah. there's still that little voice, as you said, that little boy, that little girl, that little person that's in us, that then now has put up all of these um, walls to, div- to, to, to hide, as it were, or to, to cower away from what they have observed. I think, I think it, you know, it depends on the situation, but quite often it challenges people on a number of different levels. And, you know, and, you know, it's just, it's in a lot sort of those sort of typical macho environments. On one level, people would feel challenged because there was an expectation from their, their peer group, but also something that applies to themselves about how it is that you should be if you're a man or how it is that you should be if you're a police officer. And when a lot of these, um, psychological and physiological symptoms are coming up for them. It really threaten, threatens that. So you've almost got a layer of anxiety yeah. on top of the, the natural anxiety because it's, who am I now? I thought I was this person, but I behaved in this way and I'm feeling like this. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I'm not the, the, the strong man or the figurehead of the family anymore because I'm, I'm really grappling with what's going on for me. So I think there's that element, but almost before you, you get into that, and, and that can be quite a big area in its own right. You, you've got to work, again, going back to what we were speaking about before, you've got to work with the reptilian brain. Yeah, because and that, this yeah. is why a lot of talking therapists don't, don't work when it comes to trauma. It's because they're working with the rational part of the brain. Okay. My rational brain talking to your rational brain. When you're working with trauma, people know they, generally know they've been through a trauma. They know they survived the trauma, but it doesn't stop the brain from going into overtime. So okay. the, the brain operates on lots of different levels, but the, when we're talking with trauma, often the part that is most effective is what's called the reptilian brain. And this is the, the bit, as we said before, it's all about survival. Yeah. And, and, and often it can't make sense of things that have happened, particularly if those things have happened uh, unexpectedly. You know, if you're a soldier going into a war zone, it's not to say it's ever going to be great, but actually to some extent you expect to go out there and for something to happen. But if you're a train driver doing the route that you do every day of the week and suddenly somebody comes through the windscreen of your train, mm. that is an out of the ordinary experience. And the brain struggles with things that are not predictable. And so it will often gets caught in a loop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah. That, that so, is so true. what that means is it, it doesn't matter how mm. much you understand what happened on a rational level, part of your brain will almost be back in that experience and it will keep replaying it. Sure. So, um, so, so you, about the hanging biggest in there. part of what you would do is, is, is getting that part of the brain stabilised 
and calmer so you can then actually start to work on the more cognitive day-to-day challenges. So, so, does, so does that also, um, do you have techniques in terms of the language you use? Because I guess the reptilian brain is very binary and basic. Yeah, it's almost like, in so, my head, it's like I'm seeing yeah. a caveman, unga bunga, unga bunga so, type thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, words are, words, are, words are a modern construct. They belong to the rational part of the brain. So clearly when I'm working with somebody, I have to, I have to use language to talk with them. Mm. But we tend to keep, in, particularly in those early sessions, to keep the language very simple wherever possible. No convoluted instructions or anything like that. And, and, and we use um, a number of different techniques, but one of the ones that we use the most is something called EMDR, which was developed for Vietnam vets back in the, in the 70s and 80s. And, and EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And essentially what you're doing there is almost a content-free therapy session. You get someone to think about their experience and whilst they're thinking about it, to follow your fingers with their eyes. So something like this. And it I'm sounds it weird. Now. I'm doing it now. And <laughs> <laughs> you did it. But, but actually what it does, it, 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 it starts to get that primitive part of the brain to kickstart and to process and file away that memory. So it doesn't forget that it's happened, but it starts to realise that it's a past event. And like any other past event, it's there if you want to think about it, but it's not there if you don't. And, and, and so just getting people to almost do sort of a, um, it's almost like a stream of consciousness. With very little intervention with the therapist, other, other than to make sure that uh, things aren't spilling over and sort of making the the, the, the client feel even more endangered. Sure, sure. Um, and that's really what you do in those first few sessions. But if you're not doing that, any kind of rational conversation is going to fall on deaf ears. Um, and what you'll find with a lot of therapies that they they apply talking therapy and trying to get people to just talk about their experience. And a lot of the time, it re-traumatizes people. You know what? You're you're so right. I was doing um just a couple of weeks ago. I was working with the Singapore Access team, um providing um telephone calm support to people that are vulnerable, and that's exactly what I have realised. In fact, that um a lot of the callers that were coming in, they had already had therapy. They were coming from their therapy session, and they were left with these thoughts that they don't know how to unpack and put back in, in, in the safe place of their psyche. And they were more unstable. And so my next session is this time next week. I've got nothing. What can I do? And the, the talking therapy I will, I'm, I'm delivering over the phone is only on the phone. I don't go out and visit the individual. If you're not in the room with them. Yeah. 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 I was struggling. So obviously we make honorable deferrals so that the, community teams can go out and visit. But in terms of holding them and um, supporting them in that, it's, it's very, very, but they do echo exactly what you're saying in, in the sense that they've had this, this session and they've asked, they've been asked to open up and and um, articulate things that have happened that are traumatic. But I felt, they felt it was too soon. Either the trusting relationship was not built up yet. The time was not there. And also, funny enough, the environment was, wasn't there. Well, well this is, that's a tricky one because I guess a, a lot of therapies deliver within a medical environment and a lot of people instinctively feel on edge as soon as they go into a medical environment. Yeah, yeah. And this is the value, this is the value that um, your services um, offers um, in terms of access to services as well. Some of the people I've, 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 I've supported 
I've been complaining they've been on the waiting list for 10 weeks, year, yeah. even two years. And some people have been yeah. on the list so long that the service has been um, um, stopped. The service has stopped, restarted for a different name, stopped again. And they still I'm not in that window. I've had any therapy whatsoever. That's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, and that and that's coming from Kent, you know. So it's it's a very very difficult situation. Like that value that you bring, that opportunity that you bring to enable somebody to have that space, to to and it's safe. I think the key word there was safe, the safety. You know, you, you've got to get the safety there. So you know, alongside what we we were talking about there with EMDR, we'd be teaching them things like how to, how to self manage. So it's not a case of your wholly reliant upon the therapist it's it's even before you start opening things up anymore how do you start to contain the initial reactions you're getting so teaching people breathing patterns teaching them psychoeducation teaching them mindfulness yeah yeah. all these kind of things that that make them able to manage their own situation but also not to give themselves a hard time a lot of people think am i going mad am i abnormal why why am i feeling like this i was never like this before other people aren't like this so true so teaching them even just the psychoeducation behind some of these ideas takes a layer of anxiety away. Yeah. They kind of like can talk to themselves that they're expecting it to happen. Like for example, the, the negative thoughts. Um, I remember that my, my, my back, whole background in mental health is a lot of it's to do with CAMS, child and adolescent mental health. And um, some of the children have problems when they're um, identifying the goal that they want to achieve in life. And I remember having a conversation with a young chap and he was struggling to articulate his goal. And I said to him, count, right? You can count in seconds before the negative thought comes. And the second he did, and he was so happy. I thought I'd come up there how many seconds, but I said, think of the biggest thing you want to achieve in this, in this world, the biggest thing, and then count how long it takes for you to say, to come up with something negative that will prevent you from doing it. And I could see him counting. And then when he got it, like I said, he was so, so happy, but now he understood that no matter what you do, you have that negative side of things. And so when he comes, like the, the, the weeks that he was on the ward, he'll come back to me and say, the, the thoughts are coming and I know they're coming. And I, and I tell the thought that I know you're coming, but I'm going to yeah. give you maybe a minute, two minutes of my time, then you can go away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think just, just that awareness, you know, just to, to, to start to realise they can actually have control over it. They're not a victim of, of the things that are happening to them control uh, is immensely powerful. Sure. You know, and, and some of these things, they seem really obvious, but, but they're actually not yeah. They're small things, but they're big things. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. So in, in this window that we have um, with this, this viral outbreak, you know, how things in terms of your um, reaching out to clients, how creative can you be in, in it? Cause you're not able to, no one's able to go out and reach out and have that physical, um, that visual contact with people directly. Yeah. Um, how, are you make, how are you making use of technology in that regard? Yeah, well, we're, we're slightly ahead of the curve in that uh, we've been using video technology for quite a while, particularly Zoom and Skype. Um, and we've actually got, um, we're actually releasing an online therapy platform very, very soon. So that will be wholly around the idea of delivering therapy by video. And that was really even before this, this current situation happened because we recognised that actually a lot of people want the convenience of being able to access therapy from wherever they are. Uh, and also the overheads involved in, in running a, a, an online therapy practice are, are far lower than they would for a face-to-face sure. in, a, in a physical room. So actually you can pass those savings onto the clients. It just means that therapy can become more accessible for people who are on the move all the time, people who are on low incomes, 
people who are physically incapacitated or living in remote areas of, of, of the world. Um, so this is, again, this is part of our drive towards making therapy more accessible and, and also relevant for people. I think it's a fantastic thing. And, you know, it just so, so happens that the, the, the biggest um, influx in terms of apps that have been around health and well-being, there's almost like a deluge of that stuff going on. But still, for me, getting access to quality therapists, you know, because you can have all the apps in the world, but you still need access to somebody that is um, competent to deliver that therapy. As we, as you were alluding to yeah. before, in terms of we have within the profession people that will still approach it from the the wrong perspective, as it were. You know, instead, instead of yeah, I, I, yeah I, 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 this is one of the things that sort of concerns me about the industry that I work in is that it's you know it's it's if you don't know enough about it, if you're somebody who's struggling and just trying to seek help, you know, we've already spoken about waiting lists, but if you go down the private route, there's something like four thousand different types of therapy. Many of them are aren't widely recognised, and and it's still still not fully um, fully registered and accredited. There's no single governing body. So mm. you could wake up tomorrow and decide you're going to be a therapist. And, and to some extent, nobody can do anything about it until something goes wrong. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there are accredited bodies. I'm accredited, but, um, but they're, not, they're, they're not compulsory. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there are lots of people out, out there doing, you know, working with very uh, serious issues that people are experiencing and, and, and are probably causing as much damage as, as they're resolving. Yeah. And this one, this question wasn't <laughs> scripted. Sorry, Richard, this question, next question wasn't scripted, right? But it's something that's come to my mind because my cousin did designs computer games and he, he was alluding to the um, an imminent problem whereby the gaming addiction could go right through the roof. And I've never seen a games therapist, I, I, don't, I probably don't know the right expression or the right term, but is there such a thing? It's, it's off the cuff, but it's just something that's been playing on my, on my mind. Because... Um, Everyone's in the house now. Kids, yeah. kids now have a reason to be on the computer for a longer protected time because the schooling is done on the yeah. computer now. Yeah. And they can just yeah. alt tab and be gaming at the same time without yeah. that police. The parents are also working and they're saying, so are we, are we sleepwalking into a bigger problem as well in terms of say just gaming addiction? And is anything that... It's, it's been a big thing for a, for a number of years, actually. So we've seen a, a, a few people. So, you know, gaming, internet porn, technology, I guess, becomes a manifestation for yeah. some of the traditional fam, uh, problems that we would have seen before. Um, and, you know, and the whole FOMO thing, fear of missing out, you know, people being obsessed with social media, you know, bullying online, all the kind of behaviours that we would see in the, in the physical world are, are starting to translate to... The digital world. So certainly, you know, there is a, a big demand for therapy around those kind of things for sure. Sure, sure. So, so back back on track. That's good. At least I've got something to say about that. Um, <laughs> in terms of the access to services, as, as you said, now you, now you're about to launch this. Um, is, is it virtual um, coaching? Did you say, or is it online? Yes, online. It's, it's online uh, secure video uh, therapy and coaching. Yeah, that's the word. Online and secure. So the, the 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 therapists that you would get access to are vetted. This is one of the one. That- 
absolutely. So we, you know, we don't take any anybody on board. They have to have worked for at least five years. They have to be fully accredited and insured. Sure. They have to have references. They have to have DBS checks. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're trying to establish a gold standard for therapy because there isn't there isn't one out there at the moment. Then, then you, yeah, exactly. Then you you become the gold standard and you set the bar high. That's, that's the plan. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. So uh, unfortunately, then then it leads on to outcomes. You know, outcomes and this is where health really struggles. You know, I've been in health informatics for many years and we struggle to articulate the outcomes, you know, meaningful outcomes. So when a patient says I've recovered, what does that mean? I'm better now. Yeah. What does that mean? What does that look like? And how does the service know that it's hitting its marks and people are, how, how are you addressing that? Yeah, I mean, this is the risk. And I think, you know, if you go down the, the, the typical NHS model, you'll have sort of six or 12 sessions of CBT. Yeah. And they'll, they'll assess you at the outset, maybe in the middle of the, the treatment process and at the end. But you, you imagine, you know, that's a six or 12 week period. Yes, hopefully you will have improved over that period, but how how embedded is, are those insights? Could it be that you just had a lucky, quiet six or six or 12 weeks? So we, we, we do all of that, but we also follow up with people uh, a year later as well. Yeah. Um, and, and not just in terms of statistics, but also in terms of, anecdotal feedback as well from people sure. and I think all, all of these things are really important not just the, the data but also what what are people's uh, experiential feedbacks on, on 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 what they've encountered but I think it's really important that it goes beyond that duration of the actual therapy itself yeah and one of the things that we do is you know again you know some of it is time some of it is money with, with, with models like the NHS but they have to get people through the door and out, out the door as quickly as possible so we try to when we're working with somebody, it's not to say that we're working with them forevermore, but we try and space the sessions out over a number of uh, weeks or even over a few months, depending on the severity of the situation. So we've really got an opportunity for people to road test the skills that they're learning. That's key. So that they've got an opportunity to feedback and say, well, that worked well. Or actually, I thought it worked well, but I've just had a problem that didn't get addressed by that. And you can start to incorporate all that within the therapy. So it's, it's a continuous period of refinement that means when the person goes away more often than not they're able to become their own therapist they don't need you anymore and that's ultimately what's about it's about empowering people brilliant brilliant so again it's like a turkey vote for christmas the better you are at delivering the service you don't your service is no longer going to be required they can well, move this on is it. you're life. doing your job right you know you did, a lot of the time you want it to be to the point where people are not coming back and they're not coming back for the right reasons yeah and the, and the fact they've got they've got they've got that window which is what I like a lot. It's, it's spaced out. I know within the NHS to try and give you your sessions very, very quickly, but there's yeah. not enough wriggle room or growth room for you to reflect on what you've learned and apply it to your life. Absolutely. You, you, know, you think about it, any, any of us, you know, if you're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, you're expecting somebody in six hours of therapy to change the habits of a lifetime. It's not going to happen. You know, the biggest thing is that, yes, you need that awareness and that insight, mm. but the biggest thing that changes is rehearsal. Rehearsal. Yeah, that's another big one. You've got to rehearse the yeah, skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's and another. Nature. That, that, that's, that, that's a big one. Rehearsal. And that doesn't just happen. No, it doesn't just happen. Um, the only time I know about rehearsing anything is lines for acting, but rehearsal in terms of, what does that look like in terms of therapy? Well, if you think you think about it, everybody's got their default ways of thinking and behaving. If I if I suddenly put you in a situation where something happened quite quickly, mm. 
you you would have a certain set of thoughts and behaviours that are, are probably typical to you. Yeah. And other people, some of the people might have those. Other people have different ones. And then things always happen instinctively. And a lot of the time, when we are showing sort of uh, elements that are to do with, um, you know, it's psychopathology, if we want to call it that, um, it, it's those tend to come out more when we're under pressure. And so okay. if we want to have alternative, healthy, or even just more flexibility, it doesn't mean that I think your patterns are wrong, but it might be one, one a few more things to our repertoire. Yeah. You, you've got to be able to bring those to bear when you're under pressure, because if those things are in short-term memory, when you're under pressure, the reptilian brain takes over and basically knocks that short-term memory out of action. Yeah. So yeah. unless it's ingrained and you've rehearsed it and created those new neural pathways, you won't be able to access it. You'll remember it after the event. Mm. You might have a vague idea of what you're meant to do, but actually you won't quite remember how to put it into play. And, you know, I've worked with people who've had instructions in front of them, and when they're extremely stressed, they can't even read the words. And imagine what that's like if you're trying to hold that information in your mind. So the rehearsal is really important because it means that you can um, circumvent those typical stress responses and, and buy yourself the option of reflecting before you act. Sure, sure. Yeah, because it almost, almost becomes a um, self-conscious, oh no, subconscious thing. that you're. That... And that's what you ultimately want to be aiming for, is that you can get to the stage where you, you, you can apply these alternative, healthier approaches without even having to think about it. And but even if you can't quite get to that stage, even just knowing when you're going into a particular mode mm. and being able to put the brakes on for a few seconds, think actually, do I want to go with this or what else What else is available to me? Even if you then ultimately go back to the thing that you were going to do anyway, you're doing it from a more informed place. There's a lot of wisdom and value. Is the essence and the, um, the essence of what you're talking about is it coming from one particular doctrine or is it coming from a plethora of different sources being spiritual um psychological medicine it, it comes from all over you know this, this is one of the things about therapies that a lot of the a lot of these uh different therapeutic approaches have got so they're, they've always got like a cult status and they've got acolytes and i you know, i've been training lots of different approaches but I, I i and i think you know most of them have got something to offer but i'm not sold on one single approach because I think, you know, you end up trying to get the, 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 the client, the patient to fit the model yeah. rather than actually seeing them as an individual. I think it's good to be able to draw on all these things. But actually, you know, a lot of these things that we think about CBT, mindfulness, all these kinds of things. You know, I told you before, I, I studied classics at university. People were talking about this stuff thousands of years ago. Yeah. They didn't yeah. call it CBT. Yeah. They were thinking about exactly the same, the same kind of things. Yeah. Epictetus, who was a Greek philosopher, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor in um, Gladiator. Yeah. These guys were writing about this stuff over 2,000 years ago, and they were probably writing it based on things that they'd learned from people who lived thousands of years before that. Sure, sure. So it, it, there's a journey there. So there's an evidence base there that is that is solid because the human has not changed it, it, much, if any, or if, if, if at all, in terms of its core functioning as a, as a, as a, as a, as a species, really. Um, in terms of um, this whole concept of, again, this helping, I, th- I would like this show to help people, you know, and you've dropped so many pearls of wisdom in there. And I did um, deliver a, a show last week regarding the, the rampant rise of domestic violence. And through my own work, I've, I've noticed that a lot of people that um, 
do violence upon other people have very low emotional intelligence. Very, very low. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And the victims of it equally so have uh, have low self-esteem, low confidence levels. If is there any any pearls of wisdom you could drop for anybody that's going through that situation as the victim and anybody else that has the inclination that, that to be violent, particularly now whereby people are not able to move and have no wriggle room in their house. What sort of safety things can we put in place to support these, um, these people? Well, I think, I think if, you, if, you're, if you're a victim of this, you know, it's, it's very easy for me to, to say these things sitting on the outside, not having been in that position. But I think I, I would ask yourself, would you want this for your own children? Yeah. And, it, and if you wouldn't want it for them, why is it okay for you? And, 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 and often people stay with somebody who's violent because they're, again, they're, they're frightened of the unknown. And sometimes, you know, it's better the devil you know. It might be your confidence has been ground down over a number of years that actually you don't think you're capable of surviving on your own. But actually, however bad something might feel, all of us have got everything that we need within us. And, and you've just got to trust yourself. Yeah. Don't be, don't be taken in by the fear of the unknown because really is it as bad as your mind will tell you it is. Wow. And so that would be my, my advice. Um, um, and then if you are somebody who uh, is, is prone to that kind of behavior, um, I think you've got to, got to ask yourself, where, where's that coming from? Very often we lash out or we blame other people for our behavior. And I think, you know, that's a very childlike position to take. And actually each of us is responsible for what we do. So no matter how provoked you think that you are, you still have a choice as to how you choose to behave in that situation. Yeah, it's about that external locus of control. I've I've found yeah. that in a lot of people who it starts with you. Yeah, who, if you're if you're if you're lashing out at somebody, there is something. They, whatever they may have done, you still have a choice as to how you behave. It's it's about recognizing what you can influence within yourself to 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 behave differently. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and I couldn't I couldn't agree more with what you said. We could talk until there's no more saliva left, literally. <laughs> Until the sun goes down, because there's so much things that I feel that needs to be said within this space. While people are at home, it's an opportunity for us to really reflect. And when we come out the other side of the coronavirus, things are going to be different. And it would have been a perfect opportunity that we could have changed things about ourselves and come out better human beings. You know, take not taking for granted each other's the time. And understand that we're all different and we, we do look at things from a different vantage point. And it's okay. It's not yeah. a bad thing. You know, um, I think there's been too much um, um, splitting of the nation. And I know it was triggered by Brexit or whatever, or Brexit just bubbled up what was hidden under the surface anyway. But I think there's a lot of that in the world. I think the ultimate solution that we need moving forward is that sense of, oneness in that sense of like you know we are connected you know we've got far more in common than not common you know and the accessing therapy um can be done in a very direct way or indirect way so to somebody that is um shy who is concerned that what people might perceive them to be like is there any any books or anything that they can reach out to that has 
psychological messages in him that can also put them on that journey. Because I guess you're on the journey, there's certain things had to happen. Certain things had to align for you to go on that journey, right? Because any good money, IT consultant, all of that, car, house, nice, nice women, something had to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a whole a whole range of books out there, but I, I would, um, I'm a great advocate for a particular book. In fact, I've got a copy here somewhere. Bear with me. Is it gone walkabouts? It's gone walkabouts. There it is. Bear with me. Okay, this cool. Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search It's by a guy called Victor Frankl. Okay. So Victor Frankl was a, a uh, Jewish psychotherapist in one of the internment camps during the Second World War. And this book is all about finding meaning and actually those people who find meaning in their life are more likely to be resilient they're more likely to be able to withstand short-term difficulty because they're able to see value in the things that are happening even if they're things that they wouldn't choose to happen but also they're more likely to seek out and align with things that fit with what's important for them and all of us have our own individuality we all have our own route in life and and so often because we're not conscious of what that is, we get pulled in all kinds of different directions that psychologically and physically aren't healthy for us. Um, and, and it's not uncommon, is it, for people to have these, these sort of uh, midlife crises, or in my case, sort of in their 20s, I think, well, how the hell did I end up here? Yeah, yeah, I, I was there because as well. you're not consciously thinking about what, what your route and your path is. Yeah. So definitely I'd recommend this. It's only a small book. But uh, a, a very, very, very interesting yeah. read. Um, Man's Search for Meaning by, by Victor Frankl. Fantastic. And also I'll put the information on the show notes as well. And um, Richard, how can people get hold of you? What's the best way they can reach out to you, they need access to your services and um, want to know more? Yeah, so if you want to find out more, uh, a couple of different websites you can look at. One is clinicalwellbeingservices.com. And the other one is pinnaclewellbeingmedia.com. If you have a look on either of those sites, you can find out more about what we do. And if it sounds of interest, then, then by all means, give us a call or send us an email. Fantastic, fantastic. And Richard, I do thank you for freeing up the time. It's not easy. I know you're in high demand. Pinnacle Wellbeing Services are their gold standard when it comes to wellness and well-being in the workplace. And um, and as you, you guys have heard, um, Richard's passion is coming from a sincere place. He knows his stuff. So I salute you, Richard. My Drop Club, we're out. Take care. Take care. Take care. See you soon. See ya. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out micdropclub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life, make life boom. Enjoyed that? Enjoyed that? Yeah.